VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, June the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonts King is sitting in the producer's chair. Today, you'll be speaking with Fonts when you give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I don't even know if I remembered to offer a happy Father's Day wish to all of you fathers or people playing the role of father or father figures last Friday, but happy belated, happy Father's Day to you. Hopefully you had the opportunity to spend it with your loved ones, your children, of course, and if you're lucky enough to still have your own father around. So happy Father's Day to the lads out there. Okay. Game three tonight at the Stanley Cup Finals. It's almost getting surreal. I know maybe some of you are sick of hearing me talk about Alex and Hook, but here we go. So Saturday night, the Avalanche just looked supreme and dismantled the Lightning 7-0. Newhook had an assist on the first two goals as his first multi-point playoff game. Extraordinary stuff. He's out there on the power play. He played about 16 minutes. He was the first intermission interview. Just fantastic stuff. And they are game three tonight in Tampa Bay. If the Lightning don't pick up one tonight, it's pretty much a done deal. Can you imagine the cup coming home for come home year? Way to go, Alex. Boy, oh boy. Also, say congratulations to another couple of hockey players here from this province, uh, Ryan Green and Zach Dean. They've been invited to Hockey Canada's U18 camp coming up in Calgary. Two fine young hockey players. So good luck and congratulations on getting the nod to attend the camp to Ryan Green and Zach Dean. And how about that Katarina Roxon? One of the very best athletes we've ever produced here in this province. She won a bronze medal in the 100-meter backstroke at the Madeira 2022 World Power Swimming Championships. Of course, she won uh, silver and bronze in that same event back in 2019. Again, she struck gold, remember, back in 2016 at the Paralympic Games in the 100-meter backstroke. So she's just a beauty, and that's a not only a bronze medal, but set a Canadian record while doing so. Brilliant stuff. Okay. So it's Colin Show. So we're looking forward to speaking with you today. The first commercial telephone service in the world installed by the Bell Telephone Company, of course, Alexander Graham Bell, it was in Hamilton, Ontario, 1877. Sort of a strange place for the first for, uh, commercial service, but there you go. And also today, you know, has some ties to this moment in time. The so-called Red Telephone was established between the White House and the Kremlin to link the two superpowers. Those are after lessons learned in the Cuban Missile Crisis. That red telephone installed today, 1963. Okay, so I guess DFO has got around to announcing when the recreational food fishery will open. Last year we found out on the 29th of May that it would open on the 3rd of July. So we found out just a couple of days ago that it is indeed going to open beginning on the 2nd of July. Now, we were told there was all sorts of work being done for a special crafted come-home-year type of recreational food fishery. I don't know how different anything is. So it opens on the 2nd, runs for 39 days just like it did last year, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. It runs the summer portion until the 5th of September, reopens on the 24th of September, and runs then until the 2nd of October. And same old rules. Five per person, 15 per boat when there's three or more fishing. Even if there's five in the boat, still apparently only allowed to have 15, even though I've never heard anyone being dealt with on that front. So, no requirement for licenses or tags. This is the first year that I ever thought that maybe tags would be welcomed in some corners. I know it feels cumbersome, and nobody wants to be told what they can and cannot do going out for jigging a cod. 
But anyway, here it comes. You know, not a lot of prep time, and I think it's absolutely a fact that some people will wait to book some of their time off to coordinate it with the recreational food fishery, especially those thinking about coming home, whether it be for come home year or just your annual visit home to say hello to your friends and family. So there you go, July 2nd, still only 39 days available for you. It's going to be popular. You know it is. Just look at what goes on when you go to the grocery store. So any opportunity to be a little bit more cost-efficient and put some of these beautiful cod in your deep freeze, well, you think it's going to be a big year. I would imagine it is. So here it comes. And I think this is going to be really popular. I spoke to this last week. It's a new partnership between DRL Bus Lines and the Big Feed Club. They're going to be able to allow you to go to their website, the Big Feed website, and register, which is free, and select uh, the menu of some 1,500 Costco products that are generally on hand in the warehouse at Costco. So DRL is going to deliver them, but they're focused on fresh food and household staples, to any of their 21 stops along the Cross Island route between St. John's and Port of Basque. So, you know, gone are the days where you're going to have to make the trek to St. John's to go to Costco. It's a popular shopping destination. Of course it is. You know, whether it be the interest in buying bulk or the good prices that you can sometimes get at Costco. So I'm going to guess that this is going to be an uber popular program. So just go to the Big Feed Club website, register there, and you'll be able to get that delivered, the product that you order delivered, right to one of the 21 bus stops along the Trans-Canada Highway and, you know, just factor in the fact that this almost feels like it's getting sneaky. And I, I'm not sure what to say anymore about the PUB and the setting of the prices of fuels. But diesel went up 10 cents on Friday. I never even heard a murmur. I guess we shouldn't be surprised. You know, gone are the predictable Wednesday evening we get a news release and embargoed until you're allowed to report it after midnight about the Thursday increase or decrease. Increase is pretty much the rule of the day now. So the interruption formula is all the rage. Diesel up 10 cents. Gas spared for this moment in time. I got some gas yesterday, 2.25 a liter, unbelievable. Furnace oil increased 8.64 cents. Stove oil on the island is up by 8.64 cents. Stove oil in Central Labrador up 11.14 cents. And this on the heels of some whopping big increases in Labrador, Central Labrador in particular, when the annual price freeze was eliminated. Gas went up, what was it, 69 cents one day last week in Labrador? So with all of those things, the combination of the cost of getting around to do your shopping and this opportunity to get out in the boat and jig a few cod on the 2nd of July and or to be part of the DRL's partnership with the Big Feed Club, I think it's probably going to be some popular options that folks will absolutely be considering. Okay, so today, the 20th of June, many of the travel restrictions are now lifted. Unvaccinated Canadians can hop on a domestic plane or a train. Welcomed, of course, and I think in my personal estimation, overdue it also you know some of the restrictions absolutely were a contributor to the chaos in some of the major airports it wasn't all just COVID restrictions some of it absolutely was not being staffed up appropriately to accommodate what was a predictable surge in travelers the pent-up demand and the folks the fact that folks have not been traveling for a couple of years and maybe saved up a few shillings to do whatever they wanted to do to go visit family and friends or simply to get out of dodge so the chaos is there but some of the restrictions do indeed remain, and the need to uh, fill out the Arrive Can app of 72 hours prior to arriving back in the country. There's still some testing and uh, quarantine requirements for unvaccinated Canadians, but they now can indeed get on these flights and or on these trains. So if you're planning on traveling, you'd like to speak to some of the restrictions that are, are or have been eliminated, for now at least, and you do still have to wear a mask on the, one of these planes or trains, and so I'm not sure that's the biggest deal, but anyway. You want to talk about the travel restrictions that have gone away at this moment? 
we can tackle that. Today, let's stay with aviation. Beyond the chaos in the airports, it really does look like and feel like there's some serious optimism in Stephenville and surrounding area regarding the Diamond Group's proposal to invest millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, create thousands of jobs, you know, build their massive drones at the airport, reinstate some of the passenger travel. So the Stephenville uh, Municipal Council has granted another $50,000 grant, only one person that was opposed to it. That's Councillor Lenny Tiller. We spoke to Councillor Tiller on this program the last time around. So they did this back in March and May as well. But Carl Diamond, who's the lead man at the Diamond Group, Pretty sure we're going to be able to have him on the show this week. Hopefully he'll make some time for us to give us a status update. It's fine for the councillors to be bullish on this, and let's hope they're right. Because that sort of economic uptick in that region would be most welcome, to say the very least. But people, and it's not only the councillors, some people who apparently, and I think, have their ear to the ground in the appropriate part of the ground, they think that this is going to come, so... Fingers crossed that this absolutely does get off the ground out in Stephenville. You want to talk about it? Let's go. And I heard Nova Shepard on the BOCM newscast prior to this program talking about how many people in this province have put their own vehicles on the car sharing app, the ride app, Toro. I haven't because I don't have a vehicle to spare. But so one lady apparently had five vehicles she was able to put on it. Toro itself says there's been a surge of some thousand trips already been booked through their service already. And you know that number is only going to grow. So if you're a listener right now and you've put your vehicle on, give us a shout. Let us know how it works and, you know, whether it be an encouragement or just some additional information for others out there who are considering it and may be wary of one facet of the program or another. Let's have you on the show this morning if you're so inclined. How are we doing on the phone there, Fonce? All right, so we got an update on the Muskrat Falls project last Friday from uh, Jennifer Williams, the CEO over at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. And, of course, predictably, we knew full well there was going to be an increase on the price tag given the continued delay. And that price tag update is an additional $256 million, by and large, all to do with the GE-glitched Labrador Island link. So now we're at $13.37 billion. Ms. Williams says there will not be an impact on your rates this year. They'll remain stable until sometime next summer. Currently, we're paying, if you're on the island, the inter- the interconnected grid, 13.4 cents. So, you know, they say now that GE has had some success with some of the testing in their factory at, at, in England. And let's see whether or not that's going to allow us to uh, transmit more than the 450 megawatts that we can currently do over the Labrador Island Link, as opposed to the rated output of some 839 megawatts at the Musgrave Falls site itself. There was also the settlement uh, arrived with Astaldi. You know, this is galling. Of course, Astali was hired to build a generating station and the dams at Muskrat. They were kicked off the project late in the year of 2018. And it was a miscalculation hiring a company with no experience in these harsh conditions. And you know the rest. So Astali, they were suing us for $400 million in damages. The settlement award, $12.7 million. Astali, take your money and beat it. All right, that's that update. We talk a bit about protection of your own private information. We all know what happened with the cyber attack at the Meditech services. And some people are still quite worried about that, have signed up for some credit protection. The government will cover the cost for some five years. Now, this was an inadvertent sharing of information, but it just shows you how easy it is for our personal information to make its way into the hands of people who should not and will, should not have their eyeballs perusing it. 
So some 15,000 students at Memorial University. Someone, again, accidentally shared their, their personal info. Some thousand students got an, an email with the names of the students, their email address, their student numbers, their programs of study. There was no health information or social insurance or financial information included in this breach. It will not allow this, those 1,000 to have access to any university students using your name and personal information. But it just goes to show you just how easy these things happen. And so, as people say, it's not a matter of if you've been hacked, it's when you will be hacked because it's coming to all. And this one, I'm sometimes hesitant to talk about these types of stories because they are quite serious and traumatic. And I don't know, but we got to do it, though. So the opportunity for teens to be put in peril just making a innocent mistake, or maybe not so innocent, but they just they have fallen for some solicitation online. So these stories, the one I read this morning is simply heartbreaking. 17-year-old boy out in Manitoba. He was asked to send an explicit image. He did. Within minutes, he was being blackmailed. And hours later, that same day, took his own life. So the, the fact that teen boys and teen girls can so easily get into a spiral of trouble is something we have to keep our eyes on and talk about with our teenage sons and daughters. So CyberTip is Canada's tip line to report such uh, instances. They had an average of 20 reports a month for sexual exploitation in 2021. It shot up to 55 a month this year and increased further to 75 reports in May. And those are only the people who have reported it. You know that number is probably times 100 for young Canadian teens who have fallen prey. So I know it becomes an awkward conversation sometimes. And yes, we want to treat our teenagers and show them our, our trust in them and allow them to have some quasi-independence. But helpful reminders to be very, very careful with all of the evil lurking around any corner online. You know, someone could pose as a, an attractive young 17-year-old girl who promises to send you one if you send her one. You show me mine, I'll show you yours. Next thing you know, you're being blackmailed. And you can find yourself in a world of hurt so very quickly. So just a helpful reminder. And I did indeed read some more of the Health Accord 262-page blueprint to implement the 59 recommendations that they came forward in their initial report. There's a lot to it. If you'd like to tackle some of it, we're, you know, we know that the government is going to take some time to consider the recommendations. We will indeed make time for Dr. Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis, if they're available this week, to dig a little further into it. But that's an important topic, obviously. And K-12 is just about over. For the parents of school-aged children who want to talk about the year that was and maybe some plans for upgrades and to additional prep for the next grade level, we can tackle it. I've got a couple of parents who have been very consistently emailing me with their thoughts on the school year, three years of pandemic education, and they're planning on engaging their children in some additional study time to make sure they're prepared for the next grade level, You know, especially considering we don't have a formal assessment like we would have in years past with public exams or what have you. You want to talk about it? Let's go. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Sam. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Paddy. How are you today? That's about thanks. How about you? Uh, this should be a little bit of an exciting show this morning. Then I know it's always a good. You always have a good show, especially with the recreation fishery. Uh, I talked to the DFO office on Wednesday, and they were telling me, no, not ready to make an announcement yet. We're doing some uh, planning for uh, have a special come home year recreation fishery for Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, lo and behold, what happens on late Friday night, uh, around 10 o'clock at night, they make their uh, announcement. I don't know if they were expecting people wasn't going to hear it or what that late in the evening. And it's the same as uh, same as every other year, you know, just on weekends again, right? Yeah, I mean, th- that's what they told me, too, was uh, that there's going to be some really special feature regarding come home year, but I don't see anything any different than every other year. Absolutely none. The only difference was it just made it uh, late for people uh, that was planning on coming home for trying to make uh, make it fit in with their holidays and things like that. And now it's still only weekends. And uh, on the other thing, Patty, I would like for someone to come on from uh, from DFO and explain the part with the 15 fish per boat because my understanding that is... Uh, a policy, and if you got four people in the boat, and you go out, and each one of you have your five fish and comes in, uh, you're okay. That's what some officers tell me, and uh, I'd like to see that explained because I know what it's like from uh, from experience. If you comes in, and if you got one fish, two fish over, your fines are pretty hefty, right? And because uh, it did happen to me and my brother there about four years ago, we ended up uh, with two extra fish. There was two small fish down in the bottom of our pan. And uh, when I went to court for that one, I got a thousand dollar fine. And I tell you, I'm very careful with the counts ever since then, because right? that was quite expensive. It would help. Uh, it would help if DFO gave us the once and for all uh, determination of what is allowed and what is not. They very clearly say every year that it's 15 per boat as long as there's three or more people fishing from that boat. But it never right. goes on to say that something is in contravention of one law or another, as opposed to this is a policy that we are going to try to enforce. We don't even know what happens if you get caught with 16 fish or 20 fish, and there's five people in the vote, and you come back in with, with 25. I don't know what happens, and I'm not going to promote anyone get themselves in trouble, but I really think it's important for TFO to say, because now we all hear the rumors that you're going to be okay, but that might be cold comfort for someone who gets caught and actually gets in trouble. So I'd like to have a bit more information on that. Uh, I sure would love to have it, right? Because I know there's times that we go out and there's probably four people in the boat or five people, right? And you're coming back in with uh, with 15 fish. And with the price of gas this day, especially for this year alone, right? Uh, less trips you can make, the better it is, right? But uh, I got to say, I was really, really disappointed when, uh, when they made that announcement and just still saying the same, and especially when you kept saying, oh, no, no, it's going to be a, a special this year and everything like that. No, every time you call the office, no, but... But that's my uh, take on it, Petty. But like I say, right, I was very disappointed in I was hoping that we were going to have a, a way different uh, fishery this year, but uh, it's the same as each other year. That it is. I appreciate yeah. the time, Sam. Thanks for the call this morning. All right, thanks, Patty. All the best.
Right, blah, blah. Yeah, and I'm just curious if any of you out there think that this year might have been a, a decent idea for whether you're a rotational worker or simply for the cost of going out to be able to get X number of tags. Maybe be able to get out when it's nice and calm. Maybe fewer trips to get however many tags you're t trying to satisfy. Hi, let's go. Line number one. Wanda, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Uh, to say a little upset would be an understatement today. <laughs> it's a different topic altogether than what you're discussing. But I'm calling regarding uh, my brother was flying home due to a grievance in the family. And uh, he was given very little information of why his flight was cancelled, only to find out later. Uh, they're saying that, uh, like, my, my thing this morning is, if you start off a flight, uh, I'll, I'll tell you now what his route was. It was supposed to start in Labrador, fly on to Moncton, into Deer Lake, and then the final destination was to St. John. When they got into Moncton, <clears throat> sorry, his flight was then cancelled. Now, he went to the service counter to find out what was on the go with his flight, and, and the two ladies at the service counter didn't know too much and why, or they couldn't give him any information, why the flight was cancelled. Uh, after a bit of a scuffle in the airport, uh, there was another lady that come out at afterwards and, and, and talked to my brother. Uh, he was told that the pilots would have been timed out if they had went to Deer Lake. They wouldn't have been able to travel to St. John's. Why start a flight if you know your pilots are going to be timed out before you can finish that flight? You know what I mean? I do, and I, but what I don't know is whether or not Pal thought they could have a replacement crew at whatever airport to continue on with the scheduled flight. Like, I don't know what goes on, but every time that there's a lack of communication between the traveling public and the airline or Marine Atlantic or Via Rail, it just lends to more and more unnecessary frustration as opposed to saying, okay, we've got ourselves a problem, we're going to be delayed, and here's why. Even if it's not the answer you want, information is key, so you know what you're getting yourself into. You know that I'm not going to have an unexpected layover in Moncton or wherever. Exactly. And the thing is, like the, the young two young ladies that was there on the counter, like to me, if you're having flights coming in, like someone should be aware of, of what protocol to follow in situations like this and how to explain to their their flying customers, I mean, what the problem is. Now, after he had spent so much time with these two young ladies trying to explain and, and not getting over with an explanation, an older lady had come out to the counter and looked at my brother's ticket and said, oh, my heavens, you're flying. You're, you got a grievance written on your flight. That flight just went to St. John's. You should have been on that flight to St. John's, and you could have made it home to your loved one's funeral. But sorry, sir, that flight is in the hair. Oh, man. Now, he's got two days stuck in Moncton, a place where he, he knows nothing about, and, and, and the situation is bad in a way because, I mean, we're going through a lot. Uh, now, it was very important for him to get home, as it is with anybody else, don't get me wrong, but this was my grandmother's final wishes. You know, whether this airline comes out and apologizes, there's no amount of apology can pay up for now. My brother cannot fulfill my grandmother's last wishes because this airline refused to get him here. Uh, I understand if the pilots timed out, if they thought they was, but that stuff to me should be more clarified before the flight starts. And then they got something on there saying, 
they have customer service 24 hours. We tried to call customer service last night when this happened. We left a message. We got a call back early this morning. We left a message at 10 o'clock last night. We got a call early this morning. Sorry, my love, I'm the only one working customer service, so I can't work 24 hours. So I'm now returning your calls. So take that off your website. There is no 24-hour customer service. There is only like a 12-hour customer service. And I mean, uh, if they had let him have the option of flying to St. John's, it was he could have got home around the same time driving from St. John's to Gander or driving from Deer Lake to Gander is any about the same distance. He could have made it home for his grandmother's funeral today. And right now, then they told him, we can get you home, sir, 8 o'clock tomorrow night, which would have been 8 o'clock tonight. My grandmother's service is at 2 o'clock today. I'm so sorry this is happening to you and your family, and certainly my condolences on your loss. Uh, so what are you going to do? Are you going to continue on with the schedule, or are you going to try to hold off for him to arrive? What's the plan? We Well, we can't, because the thing is, is we when this funeral was, the thing is, is we've got family from away. So this was the best day to do it, that everybody was home. Like, oh, no. people flew in for this funeral. And now some of us have got to fly back tomorrow. And if he had did, okay, if he'd made it in today, he was flying back tomorrow because you only get three days. So they put it today so everybody could get there with this grievance flight and have the funeral today versus tomorrow because the other people are flying back tomorrow as well. You know, it's a poor situation. Like It's terrible. It is. And, like, no un- un- answers. That's the thing. Like, when my brother had got off that flight in Moncton, I mean, he went up to the service counter and he asked questions. And he tried to explain to them why he was flying. All they were concerned about that he was upset. Upset? I would be upset as well. Uh, call security. You know, like, yes, no, Daddy probably wasn't a very pleasant man, but none of us would be very pleasant to find this out. Like, he was traveling from Labrador and coming home today for the funeral. I mean, he lives home. So he didn't take a bag or anything with him because he was getting off this flight and he was driving on home and attending the funeral. Right now, they put him up in a hotel room in Moncton, not even so much as food service at this hotel. He knows nothing about this area, no clothes, not even a toothbrush. His phone is about to go dead, no phone charger. Like, And to get there and get the lack of, of customer support, that's my thing. Where is the customer support? Why not? Like, okay, if they realize then, well, you should have been on that flight to St. John's. Make that flight stop right there and get my brother on that flight to get him into St. John's or make arrangements with another airline. He was not flying just for leisure or he was coming on all days. You expect to be delayed at times like that. But to be coming home for the reason that he was, and it took one lady, after the fact that the flight had been gone, these two young women he was dealing with before, it took one lady after the flight was gone to realize you were flying. For, you should have been on that flight to St. John's. Wanda, well, I'm really displeased uh, that your family's been so put out here, unnecessarily so. Um, I'm sorry once again for your loss, Wanda. And Thank you. Try to get through today as best you can, and I, I do appreciate your time this morning. Yes, and I appreciate your time for, for giving me the time to get on and address this, because like, if there's nothing done, this continues. I don't want another family to go to what we're going through today. Thank you, Wanda. Unnecessarily. (laughs) Take good care.
You too. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Boy, oh man. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, the province's new seniors advocate is Susan Wall. She's formerly the deputy minister of the Department of Child, Children, Seniors, and Social Development. She has been approved by the cabinet now to be the seniors advocate. There hasn't been one since uh, Dr. Suzanne Brake left the position a couple of years ago. We'll hear from Susan Wall straight after this. And Burns also in the queue. He wants to talk about drug addiction in Labrador. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Just before we get to Miss Walsh on line five, uh, beware just east of Whitburn. There's a dead moose in the road, on the road, so... Expect some concerns there. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the province's new seniors advocate. That is Susan Walsh. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a pleasure to have you on. We used to have uh, pretty frequent updates with uh, Suzanne Brake, and hopefully we'll have the same with you in your office because, you know, the creation of this position, albeit unable to deal with very specific concerns like the child and youth advocate would, for instance, still is a place for seniors in the province to turn, and we know how important that is. You've established five goals, so let's get right to it. So talking about transformation, of course, in lockstep with maybe the health accord and their blueprint, but the transformation of the acute care, long-term care, and community care systems. Let's start with acute and long-term care. What does the transformation look like? So the transformation is the fact exactly what you're saying, that the health accord is out. The blueprint just came out. So we know the health system is now doing you know, a full transformation of the system. We want to make sure that what they're doing, what their plans are, the program services, you know, everything that they're moving to make changes around are going to meet the needs of seniors. So we've had the health accord for a little bit of time and been able to you know, review that. But now we need to dig into the blueprint. And I know that Sister uh, Elizabeth and Dr. Paraphrase certainly have done a lot of consultations with the community in what you know their work but I want to be sure that seniors were well represented in that and that this is going to meet their needs. Uh, when we're talking about transformation we probably need to identify gaps or shortcomings in the system so where are we trying to backfill or to improve some gap or shortcoming in, let's say in long-term care because we see the forecast coming from Stats Canada about the numbers of seniors that will be in, in the province in the next 10, 20, 30 years so where are we falling short in long-term care? Well, I mean, there's a number of areas that, uh, you know, we're concerned and keeping an eye to as a consequence to make sure that uh, they will be addressed. So one is, of course, most people would know about the first bed available policy. So if you need to a long-term care, uh, you know, a level of care for, uh, based on your needs, um, you basically have, you know, you can give, uh, I think it's three areas that you're interested in moving into, but you have to take the first bed available. And of course, that isn't always the one that's in your community. And if you don't take it, then you're moved further down the line. And if you do take it, you're probably ending up in a facility that's nowhere near where your family and friends are. And, of course, what people then try to do is work their way back to get closer to their home community when as beds become available. But that change, that you know, every change in, in your arrangement has an impact, especially for seniors. And so that's an area that we're really concerned about. Another one is, of course, that um, you know, in our previous report, and I'm sure that my predecessor would have talked to you about, we know that the standards of care sometimes in these facilities are, are an area that have been of concern. And we knew that the Department of Health was looking at uh, standards of care, you know, implementing some changes around the standards. So where is that? And 
is that on the on their plan for you know their redesign of the health system, and will that get us to see some improvements and tied to that then addressing ageism? It really feels like that is a by and large a staffing issue. You know, we've talked about whether there should be a supervisor per floor and X number of staff per resident, no wiggle room available. And I don't mean to just drop these numbers on you, but I wonder, you know, with the inability to look at an individual situation and do an investigation of it, there's some of the widespread numbers uh, regarding the number of patients in this province in long-term care in restraints. National average 6.5, in this province 14.2. Also goes on to talk about uh, antipsychotic drugs. The national average 21.9, in this province 38.3. Have you seen those numbers? How should we assess those numbers? Because there's something patently wrong if we're so out of whack with the rest of the country. Well, there is something out of whack if we're, uh, you know, given that we are out of uh, sync with the rest of the country. And again, these are the things that my office wants to get inside of to determine what is the plan from the health system to review that and to change that. And that's why I'm really interested in, and while I have you know, developed these five priority areas, really, when asked the other day, well, which one is your, your main one? Which one are you jumping into? And I'm jumping into all five, but certainly the changes that are required in the health system, that is my priority because it's lockstep with the fact that this is happening now, the health system's moving on it. So let's make sure it's done right for, for what seniors need. We know seniors, for the most part, and, you know, generalizations are very unhelpful, but for seniors on a fixed income, and it's not indexed to inflation, all of their their revenue streams, now, not every senior is the same. I've had seniors who are friends of the family who own their own home, and they got the pensions, and they're doing fine. Yeah. But when we talk about the rising cost of living, inflationary pressures, the price of fuel, the price of groceries, how do you assess that and how it impacts a senior? Because, again, You know, a senior next door to me is doing just fine. One across the street, not so much. So how do we address this? Is this a matter of means testing it, or what are you looking at specifically with the rising cost of living? You know, Patty, you hit the nail on the head. It's not a one-size-fits-all, but all seniors are on a fixed income. So, yes, you're right. There are seniors out there who are doing better than others financially, and but there are but everyone when you're a senior, when you're living on a fixed income, it gets challenging when you have a set amount of money to live on and costs continue to go up. So you don't have another resource to take from. You have to then say, okay, well, where are we going to cut back on to meet the increased needs of, you know, increased cost of food, gas, exactly everything you just talked about, plus upgrades to your home, maybe changes to your home because, you know, as you age, you might need some renovations to your home to accommodate any changes to your physical ability. But truthfully, of course, the biggest issue is those seniors who live in the lowest income uh, brackets. And um, we know there are a number of... um, already federal and gov- uh, provincial government initiatives out there to try to address uh, this. And we know the federal government's coming out with more. Uh, they've made uh, indication over the last few days. So, you know, we've seen that the federal government is increasing the uh, 10% increase for the um, uh, old, age old age security for 75 plus. Plus then, of course, the provincial government is doing the seniors benefit and the income supplement for 10%. Now, all, you know, this is all happening in July. And then we've got the oil uh, rebate coming in the fall. So we, we want to pay attention to how that rolls out. And is that enough? Is that going to solve the concerns of seniors in this province? Most listening would say no. Uh, but we, we need to... Let those programs roll out, see that money come into place, see those changes, and then determine, is there other areas, and that's through talking to seniors, through talking to seniors' organizations, are there other areas that 
the government should be thinking about that could help lessen the burden of the rising cost of living, and that's where we would make recommendation, which is the role of this office. It's a systemic uh, office, so we would make recommendation to government around changes, uh, other programs and services that can meet the needs of seniors. We talk about heating your own home and uh, buying groceries for your own home. So there's something has to give or change with the ability to age in place, to stay at home. It's your sanctuary. It's where you're most comfortable. It's where you have neighbors that you know and can be familiar with and to talk with and checking in on you and the like. You know, whether it be expanding home care services and there are different assessment tools to be applied, but the, the issue with maybe family being paid to take care of you or to assist in taking care of a senior as they age and need some additional supports, aging in place, I think, is going to be Something that, you know, we're living longer and some people simply do not want to be uprooted and have to take the first long-term care bed. So is that a place we start as we try to talk about acute care and long-term care? Because some people feel like they have no other options. But to age in place would have been for a happier, a more emotionally stable place for seniors to age. Right. And so it's funny because all of these areas intermingle, right? They all impact each other. So it's not do one or the other. It all has to happen kind of at the same time because while changes are coming to the, um, you know, uh, acute and primary health care systems and long-term care, you're right that part of the response in the health system is saying, well, we need to support the aging in place. And what I'm saying is that's absolutely important. I think most seniors may say that they prefer to stay in their own homes and, of course, to connect with community and family, so that's important. But we also need to make sure that they're aging well in place, mm-hmm. that they have the services, the home support, you know, whatever renovations they might need to their homes so that they can be well in their homes, they can be safe in their homes. But then we also want to connect it to age-friendly communities. It's not enough to be well in your own home and safe in your own home because you can still be isolated. You mm-hmm. need to be able to get out into your community. You need to be able to go to bingo or, you know, go out and go for a walk or any of those things that seniors find to be um, positive and, and helpful in terms of socially getting out in community and being engaged. And so uh, it's that age-friendly community approach that's going to make the difference of aging well in your home. The two have to be connected. And so we're really uh, hoping that uh, that the approach that's taken by government will be a systemic approach. It won't just be a health approach to aging in community. It'll be a full of all of government, cross-government, municipal affairs, community, health community services, child youth family services, that they will all be interconnected to say, okay, we're going to hopefully see people age well in their own homes, but they're also going to be accessing community. And how do we make sure that happens? In conjunction, of course, with municipalities, with local service districts, et cetera. How, how should people engage with your office? Because, you know, it's not an individual circumstance and an investigation of one instance. So how do people engage with you and how do they ensure that you're advocating for them, even though it's not a single file standalone that Mr. and Mrs. Jones have a certain complaint? What do you want people to know about you and connecting with you? You know, Patty, that's such an excellent question, I have to tell you. And I came into the office on Wednesday. I mean, I was sworn in on Wednesday to the position and uh, started in right away in the media because I thought, okay, we have to let people know we're here. We have to let people know that, uh, you know, what we're doing and, and so that they can have an opportunity to have input. And I've reached out to numerous community organizations and, I, you know, as I say, just starting. Uh, in fact, just moved into the office on Saturday. <laughs> so... The key element here now is figuring out what's the best ways that seniors could connect with us. And so I've talked to staff here about, well, we don't have a Facebook page. And a lot of people, uh, seniors, do use Facebook. 
I recognize there's a digital divide, and lots of people don't even have ability to have computers, don't have uh, you know internet. I understand that, so that's a challenge for us to figure out how do we get their voices into this office. But you know there are other ways, and we're going to try to use some technology. We're going to try to go through some of our community organizations who have a link into um, into direct service provision because that's a way we can get some voices, and you know. We've we've seen through uh, COVID that there have been ways that people have been using, uh, like for example, at Health Court, uh, reaching out and doing you know broad scale uh, media events through through the internet or through the phone. And so we're we're really looking at um, how do we make sure that we get all the voices into this office. And we do also, I'll just say to you, Patty, like we do receive a lot of individual calls. Obviously, no, I don't have the legislative authority to do anything with individual calls from an advocacy perspective. But we do use the theme of these calls and we roll them up. So like if we get a number of calls related to, for example, you know, the fact that couples have to separate in long-term care, um, then, then we know the more of these we get, the more we realize, look, you know, this is this is becoming a, a major issue, and this might be something of a systemic nature. So it does inform the direction of the office. And those stories are just so sad. And there was one particular yeah. comes to mind where one of the the woman or the man, I can't remember, has dementia, and now they've been separated, and the person thinks that the, their husband or wife left them. Oh, my God. I mean, we just can't have that. Uh, Susan, I wish you nothing but the best in your role as a seniors advocate. It's an important position, and, of course, the, the concerns of seniors are varied, and they need someone to be their champion. I couldn't agree with you more. And, Patty, I welcome the open invite you have because I you you asked me how we're going to make sure that we get the voices and we reach out. Well, you're one of those ways, so I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome on the show. We'll talk again soon. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Susan Walsh is the new seniors advocate. Uh, let's take a break. I uh, appreciate your patience. Burn. you're next right after this. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us now go to line three. Good morning, Byrne. You're on the air. Uh, thanks, Mr. Daly, for uh, taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, just want to talk about... Uh, uh, drug addictions, and uh, I lost my daughter last month on uh, the uh, 18th of May uh, through drugs. And uh, well, it's under police investigation and that sort of thing. But and uh, I, I couldn't save my daughter, but uh, I really want to save another kid. Uh, I've been uh, trying to figure out some way to reach people. And, uh, like, I had an idea of basically setting up a website that would uh, uh, basically uh, put a spotlight on all these uh, drug dealers that are in every little town in, in Newfoundland and Labrador right now. And it seems I got home, and the more people I talked to about it, uh, they said, oh, God, don't do that. Like, I mean, you know, somebody will come and kill you and your family and everything else. And, uh, like I said, it's very frustrating. Um, I had ideas, basically, uh, I, I put a call into Yvonne Jones' offices, uh, she hadn't called me back, but, like, uh, uh, changes to, uh, minimum, uh, sentencing for all these dealers, like, I mean, forget, like, trolling back this little small fish to try and get a bigger fish, like, I mean, give the guy three years, federal, federal sentence, 
no deals, no nothing. Uh, people need to be aware in their communities who are doing uh, are dealing the drugs. Now, like I said, I mean, I say I lost my child. My child was 27 years old. Uh, she was a beautiful young lady, very smart, graduated high school, top marks. Uh, she did an electrical course, came out of that perfect. And uh, in the last five years, she couldn't hold a job. Uh, her apartment, uh, uh, actually, I went home in April, and my mom had died. And uh, like she came to see us. I was in Marystown at the time. And like when I seen her, like I said, oh, my God. Like, I mean, like basically skin hauled over a skeleton. She looked that bad. And, uh, you know, I said to my brothers then uh, that I'd be coming home to bury her this year. And uh, lo and behold, I was right. Burn, I'm so, so deeply sad to hear your story and your loss. And 27 years old, she's still your child. That's how I'm certainly going to feel about my, my oldest, almost 25. And that's how I still think of them. And so this is desperate. You know, just a, a couple of things. You should do exactly as you see fit, but you, you know, just from where I sit, is be careful in publicly identifying people because the folks who told you that you might be putting yourself at risk, they're probably right. And dealing with the criminal element is not only risky, but I'm not so sure we get down to the crux of the problem. You know, the, the help for people who need help, the recognition that someone needs help, the supply that they're using, the conversation in the community about Suboxone or Naloxone and all these things that we can maybe save a life by having some conversation, knowing that regardless of what we do and how hard we try, there's going to be drug dealers. No matter what we do or how hard we try, there's going to be people who will fall prey and become addicted to one substance or another. So it's all just so complicated, but it's all just so bloody sad. I uh, totally agree with you, but uh, at the same time, like, I think the system actually needs to really take a look at it. Uh, I heard a gentleman on your show last week, and he talked about the police and how, like, uh, you know, were they complacent in in uh, doing their searches and all that sort of stuff, and all these got, all these court cases are getting thrown out. Uh, like, in my mind, like, I mean, if that's what's happening, like, I mean, maybe there should be something put in place, uh, you, know, you know, if an individual officer screws up, uh, suspend him with no pay. And, I mean, if he does it again, fire him. I mean, they're not helping your community. They're not protecting your community if they're not doing their job. And the courts need to basically be uh, have it easier to link, like, a dealer with people's debts. Like, my daughter's uh, uh, situation is under investigation, so I don't know a whole lot about how everything happened. So uh, nothing I'm saying I don't think will affect anything, but the, uh, the Mental Health Act, for, for instance. When I left Marystown in April, I couldn't get in touch with her for about a week or so. I called the police and I wanted the wellness checked on. So they went, they, they found her, uh, she was okay, she contacted me, but since then I've learned basically her psychosis was that bad that she had Every bit of gyp rock tore out of her apartment. The walls, all that's left is studs in the apartment. Her psychosis was that bad. She was hearing noises in the walls. Like, I mean, when somebody walks in and sees this, like, you should say, yeah, okay, maybe there's a problem with this person. And uh, believe it or not, drug addicts, they lie to people. Like, and, you know, when, when, when somebody in authority says, are you okay? Like, 
you look at the situation. You don't like say, oh, you're okay. I'll leave again. Like people need to start like caring about these people because they are people. Uh, like my daughter is is my daughter. My daughter was a drug addict. I'm sorry. I, I hate the hate that label, but she was an addict. And uh, at some point, there's somebody else's kid going to be an addict. And, uh, you know, if I had the answers to be able to save that child or, or my child, she'd still be here today. But, I mean, I did, like, basically the counseling and, you know, tried to figure out how to reach her, tough love, good love, uh, support, non-support, you know. And, and, like, I truly believe that, like, eventually she would hit rock bottom and, and say, okay, well, now I need to get the help and I'll go to rehab and all this sort of thing. And I mean, I, I know people in, in the uh, mental health uh, business, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word. I mean, they say, look, an addict takes about 14 times, try 14 times before they actually, like, get out of it, the drugs for good. And uh, they're an addict for life. I mean, it's the same thing with alcohol. It's the same thing with any other substance that, that somebody has a problem with. It is a addiction. And, uh, you know, if, if more people talked about it instead of saying, you know, you know, I got my Facebook family, which is perfect, but now we don't talk about Johnny because, like, I mean, he's stoned most of the time, so, you know, we don't see him I and mean, we don't talk about it. Listen, you got to start talking about Johnny. you got to stop talking about Susie. And for all these parents that are out there now that are in denial, uh, don't. Like, I mean, just, just take your time, look at your kid, tell them how much you love them, Tell them you need them to get out of this. I mean, they're not going to listen, but you got to keep trying. I'm so uh, sorry, Burn. I the heartbreaking stories, and we have to do so much more to avoid the frequency with which we hear about not only the numbers of people addicted, but there's a crisis in this country, and people are unwilling to accept it and to deal with it. But there's an absolute crisis, especially when we talk about opioid-related deaths. The numbers of, and 94% of the opioid-related deaths uh, between 2021 and this year were, no one was doing it on purpose. 94% of them were accidental, and the numbers are in the thousands. I think the last number I saw was something like 5,400 Canadians had fallen prey, and that's only the ones we know about. So, Byrne, listen, I can hear the deep sadness in your voice. My condolences to you and your family, but I appreciate you telling us your story here on the show this morning. Thank you. Take good care of yourself. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Uh, When we come back, the two main architects, although many members of subcommittees dealing with the health accord, now the blueprint is in the hand of the provincial government and in our hands. Dr. Pat Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis are up right after the newscast. If you'd like to suggest some questions that you still have for these two, we can pose them on your behalf after this. Don't go away. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in The Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. As advertised, join us on lines number one and two, our sister Elizabeth Davis and Dr. Pat Parfrey. Good morning to you both. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning, uh, Dr. Parfrey. So Sister Elizabeth got cut off, so we'll start with you. So inside of this report, 262 pages of the blueprint for the implementation of the recommendations. Before we get into the operational component, 
one of the key focus areas would have been the social determinants of health and how that impacts engagement with the healthcare system. What are the proposed changes to address the social determinants? Well, the, the, the very first thing we need to do is we need to start uh, ensuring that uh, the government and the delivery systems uh, treat the social determinants of health as being particularly important. Um, and uh, we, do, we do not have very much infrastructure around uh, the information that's available and collecting that information that's available. Um, we need policy changes around um, our, our, social our, so our spending on social policy. Um, and that, that part of it, the policy development, takes a bit of time. So in the first year, we're hoping that that will be, be undertaken, particularly around poverty reduction. In fact, I'm certain it will be undertaken. Uh, Sister Elizabeth, welcome back. I'm sorry, I may have been indeed uh, the one that cut you off. So we're just talking to Dr. Parfrey about the social determinants of health. There's been a long-running problem where one department doesn't really know what the other department is doing. How do you bring the silo approach back to a, an integrated understanding at the government level? Penny, you're correct. Every group who talked to us spoke about silos. Silos within government, silos within the province, silos between the federal government and the provincial government, silos between the provincial government and the indigenous governments. And if we don't address those silos, we are not going to be able to address the fundamental problems. One of the major recommendations we are making is what we are calling regional social and health networks. These are at the regional level, but they are tables where people come together from justice, from education, from the health system, from the municipalities, from the private sector, from the indigenous communities, whoever has an impact on health. So they would come together in a region and they would together talk about what they see as the biggest threats to that region for health. Then they in turn would go back to their own organizations and make, make recommendations, and they would also go to government to make recommendations. So that's outside government in a sense, but very much linked to it. One of the things you're broaching, and I guess is in the envelope of social determinants of health, is the proposal for a guaranteed basic income program. It, you know, in other jurisdictions where they've implemented it, it has some distinct upside, but it also comes with the need to develop more harm reduction policy because sometimes it's hard to know how people may spend some additional monies coming in the door. So how do we ensure that more money in people's pocket keeps them healthy as opposed to leads them down paths where we now have to deal with them at a different level of health? And that is a, an important question you're asking, Patty. Um, and I think we have to be careful. We don't distinguish between people who have well-paying jobs and people who have no job mm -hmm. or cannot work. And sometimes we imply that people in that situation are less responsible than I would be because I have a middle class with a very well-paid job. So we have to watch we don't do that stereotyping. That's quite unfair, unjust, and inaccurate. Understood and agreed, and that's why I'm talking about harm reduction policies as a broad stroke. It's certainly not, not my intention to imply that someone who all of a sudden sees some increased revenue from the government is going to spend it on something that makes them less healthy. And so, fair point, and, and, and accepted here. What we find in the studies that have been done, and there have been two major ones in Canada, one in Manitoba, which was finished, and the other in Ontario, which was partway through, never got it, never was finished, that that does not happen. 
not by and large. It will always happen in any, anything you do. But by and large, when people have a stable, predictable income, they very soon begin to put the pieces of their lives back together and assume that they are respected members of the society and function in that way. What it also points out, though, are those the members of our society who are so vulnerable because of other conditions, whether it's mental illness or addictions or others, other uh, stressors, that, they, that, that we create better pathways to their health as well. So the evidence is fairly clear that when, when you do this, that is the result, not the opposite. We will get into some operational concerns. How does the uh, blueprint talk about and deal with the issues surrounding mental illness? Because there's a long-term access concern that's being shared by many, we know that the numbers of one in five Canadians will have a mental illness diagnosis. That number's probably grown since the pandemic. So what inside this blueprint talks about mental health? Because it is an engagement with the healthcare field. We unfortunately still talk about broken arms differently than schizophrenia. So Dr. Parfrey, what does the blueprint talk about on that front? Because we're coming up short, and I would suggest every province is in the same boat. Correct. The, the only difference is, is that this province had a, a task force on mental health uh, three or four years ago and had a substantial number of actions that they wanted to undertake and have actually done pretty well in undertaking those set of actions. We, we've, we've outlined certain areas where we, we believe there needs to be um, um, better, better work done. And in particular, we're concerned about the integration of health in schools and in, and, and in the health system and the, ensuring that there's access for children to the health side and to psychology services to be able to deal with the mental health issues of children and youth. Um, where, so obviously we believe there can be more done there and can be done fairly urgently. The other piece is that the actions that have been recommended by that mental health task force, um, they, they, had, they, they had identified that approximately 5.1% of the budget had been spent, of health budget had been spent in mental health. Um, and now it's gone up to 7.1 and the target is 9.1 million. So, or 9.1%. So I, I, even though there is a, um, a, a, a large mental health issue in this province and also in all the provinces across the country, I do think that there is action being taken in that area. Where is the consideration? I know that prior to the Health Accord doing their work with all the subcommittees, there wasn't a well-understood plan for the frail elderly. And we know what the numbers look like in this province. So how do we address that concern, whether it be uh, transformation in acute care, long-term care, aging in place? But there was not really a well-understood for individuals and families to talk about how their the care, care will be offered for their frail elderly relative or parent, sister or brother. Patty, that's an extremely important question for this province. Uh, at this present moment, 23% of us are over the age of 65. That means the highest percentage of all the provinces, and that number is, percentage is growing steadily. We had 30,000 people over 65 in 1971. Today we have 120,000 people over the age of 65. So the, the population that we're talking about is a significant proportion of the people of this province, including myself and Pat, I might add. What we need to do is have a very broad-based approach, beginning in the community. 
that we have we do not have age friendly communities. We're becoming aware of the need better need to do that. So that's where we start. When people do become frail, and that's not all elderly people, obviously, just the proportion, then we have to start in the person's home. We talk about aging in place, but aging in the right place. So there must be better supports in the person's home if that's the right place for them to remain. Our home care, our home support programs are not well developed and respected as they need to be. We then move into the community. What supports are there in the community for people, whether it's social supports or uh, access to libraries, access to arts, access to sports, the kinds of things that keep us balanced and healthy? Are they accessible by people who have maybe knee problems or hip problems or back problems? So we need to build better age-friendly communities. Then we have to look at personal care homes and long-term care homes. We have given very good care from a nursing point of view and a medical point of view, but we don't have broad-based community teams. We believe that we need to set up three hubs in this province, one in St. John's, one in central Newfoundland, and one in western Newfoundland, which are hubs, what we call centers of excellence for aging, they would be staffed by geriatricians, by nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, social workers, pastoral care workers, people who are especially trained to care for older people, and they would deal, address the most immediate needs of a frail person. And then, But they'd also become resources for the community teams we're recommending across the province. We also need to have senior-friendly emergency departments in all of our hospitals. So you speak to some staffing-related matters there, and I guess that's part of the operational concerns, even if we're talking about the amalgamation of air and ground ambulance services. By and large, we have the ambulances. We don't have the staff. Paramedics are burning out at an alarming rate. So inside of this amalgamation of ground and air, how do we also address staffing issues, or is that even a focus that you can take as health court architects? Of course, we have to take that that that, that piece. Um, I think the the first piece is that we have to get a structure that works, and we need a provincial structure that's integrated across air and road ambulance, and that is much better at delivering care for people who have emergencies like heart attacks and strokes and trauma, in such a way that there is the capacity virtually to communicate with a doctor or a nurse or a paramedic on the ground, with somebody who can direct them about how to manage a patient link them to the appropriate um, um, health resource that they need, whether it's an emergency room or it's cardiac cardiology or whether it's a neurosurgery, and then that the asset that's needed to get that person to the hospital as fast as possible, either by ambulance or by air or by helicopter, is available and efficiently delivered. So that piece really requires integration and really requires improvement. Um, so, the and then on the the the, the more uh, general circumstances of, of ambulance systems, I think the government has already signalled that it, it wants to try and uh, improve that by having a central dispatch system um, and a, a more integrated approach to the ground ambulance uh, as one piece, and then the air ambulance is another piece. 
Um, so I, I do think the signal is that there is going to be improvement and the reality is that we have to have improvement. There were some worries in different corners of the province where we people thought, well, they're going to close down my clinic, close down my hospital. There's no pledge here to close anything like they did in Saskatchewan when they transformed their health healthcare delivery model. But there is talk about different changes regarding operations, hours of operations and offerings. Uh, Dr. Parfrey, speak to what you're suggesting here because some people think, well, they're simply going to make us all drive to, that, to town. No, that's not true. Um, what, what the, the critical thing that we're recommending, and it's really through our thinking about how does every person in this province have access to community care. Um, and we're, we are recommending a collaborative community teams for particular regions of the province so that every region has got their team, which comprises doctors, nurse practitioners that are nurses for the primary care component, access to allied health professionals for the allied health component, and integration with what we now see as community services, the public health nurse and community nurses involved. So there is a team approach. Um, so again, the signals that we've had from government since we delivered the report three months ago is that um, they accept this approach. Um, they, they have, uh, they, they, they have um, agreed to negotiate with the NLMA on a new model of remuneration that's consistent with team-based care. They have stated that team-based care is the, is the, uh, the best way to go about it. And they put money into collaborative teams and they've hired somebody for recruitment and retention. So they, they kind of, the, to me, the policy pieces are actually made. So the biggest problem we've got is the recruitment problem. Um, and that doesn't get solved on day one, uh, unfortunately. Um, doctors are not growing on trees and we have a lot of vacancies for other allied health professionals and nurses, etc. So, And as you mentioned with your previous question that I never answered, which is about paramedics, um, there is a de- there is a deficit of paramedics, and they need to be trained. And for us to have an ambulance system that's good enough, we need advanced care paramedics in greater numbers. So this whole process of uh, uh, of, of trying to provide community teams is probably driven not by policy any longer, but by the capacity to get the relevant providers for the various pieces in the community teams. Um, and our probably our biggest proposal around this piece of community teams is that um, the most important thing is to get somebody who can listen, take a, take a history, make sense of it, and then de- determine which, which health profession is going to be able to give the best care, which, in, which is what we're meaning by increased scope of practice. So in my experience, I've discovered that the most sensible people in the health system are nurses. They'll give you a good story, a proper story, and they'll almost tell you what to do as well. But and also in my experience, occupational therapists and physiotherapists are very capable of giving a proper, accurate story. And then the relevant health professional can provide that care. We've been dependent on doctors for everything. And doctors are not expert at everything. So I think that that idea of a community of, uh, of multidisciplinary professionals or a team of multidisciplinary professionals working together is a good concept and then providing access for each person in a particular region to that team-based care is, uh, is a good thing. The piece that's going to be the challenge, of course, is that can you recruit providers for all members of those teams or can you come up with innovative ways of being able to um, provide access to those providers and obviously virtual care would come into effect in that instance.
That's where sustainability comes in. OBGYNs want to be delivering babies. Surgeons want to be in the operating theater. And that's maybe not available to them in certain parts of the province, making recruitment difficult, retention virtually impossible in some matters. Uh, I, both of you can take this one on. The 10-year the plan, of course, important. Healthcare, we pat ourselves on the back that universal healthcare works and we're so great to have it as Canadians, but we're not getting the intended positive healthcare outcomes. What inside the blueprint and or the interim report talks about the immediacy of the concern? 125,000 people, so says the NLMA, don't have access to a family doctor. What can people pull out of your work to talk about the immediate concerns that are being experienced across the province? Well, I think it's really important to see that there is no quick action that can work here. If there was, we would have solved this problem a long time ago. These quick fixes will not work. We need to have a vision of, the, of bringing together focus on our social, economic, and environmental conditions and focus on rebalancing the health system. If we don't bring the two of these together and focus on both, we're never going to improve the health of the people of this province in the way we need to. Focusing on that means that within five years, and it can't be beyond five years, the calls to action that we've identified need to be implemented. It'll take 10 years to see the impact, but we really do need to be intentional about focusing on that. We have to be persistent on that vision and not think we can do a piecemeal approach here and that it will work. I appreciate both of you making time for the program this morning. Thank you very much. Thanks, Patty. That's Sister Elizabeth Davis and Dr. Pat Parfrey, to the main driving forces behind the health accord and the blueprint that is now in government's hands and in our hands. The government says it'll take their time to consider what's inside this most recent piece of work. And then final implementation, we'll get a roadmap sooner than later, coming from the government, because health accord has done the bulk of their work. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Oh, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, Lindy, you're on the air. What happened there? How come when I'm clicking on numbers and they're just dropping out? All right, see if we can get Lindy back. Let's go to line number one. Kathy, you're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I spoke to you last week about the crematorium in Cornerbrook. Right. And I wanted to call back because after I was finished speaking with you, the mayor came on, and some of the things he said were misleading at best, and I just wanted to clarify some facts. Go right ahead. Where would you like to start? Pardon? Where would you like to start? Oh, so... The first thing the mayor said when he came on was that crematoriums are safe and appropriate. He felt they were safe and appropriate. And I don't think he's taken into account the effects and the impacts that a crematorium would have on the neighborhood. We've sent him so much information on facts from the World Health Organization and Health Canada and facts about the economic impacts and the impacts to our soil, air, and water. And he just refuses to believe it. He he just quotes one sentence um, from a letter he had from the Department of the Environment, and he, he insists that the Department of the Environment gave him the go-ahead, gave him the green light on this. Is that not true? Because what he said is that the it's not up for the municipality to determine whether or not there's an environmental or health impact. That's the province's role, and they defer to the province on that front. Was that not the information he was given? Yes. So. Okay. 
but the information that came from the province, and I haven't seen um, the, inf- the like the whole letter that came to to the city or to the mayor. But the, he keeps quoting this one sentence that says uh, they see no issue with this piece of equipment going forward. But there's much more to it than that. Like. You know, we have no idea, um, you know, if they tested that machine with, like, with a body in it or if it was tested empty, because apparently that's what they do a lot of times is they turn the machine on and test it empty and then say, well, nothing came out of the smokestack. So there's so many things that we don't have answers to. And part of the reason why there's not a lot of data about what comes out of a crematorium smokestack is because there's been no monitoring done over the years. And and that comes right back to regulations. There's no regulations. Nobody's requiring it to be monitored. And then when it's not monitored, you don't have data. But everything that I've read says, you know, you have to have extreme care and caution when citing these around areas where people live. So, you know, you would think the city would err on the side of caution instead of being so adamant that that has to go right smack dab in the middle of a neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, I can understand that. Even if you just boil it back to the fact that some people think it might jeopardize the value of their home. So, you know, depending on where your concern is, whether it be the impact of the emissions on the soil and or your own personal health and or property values and or the appropriate nature of the crematorium being in a residential area to begin with, I guess people will pick their angle that that concerns them the most. Yeah, and it's a combination of all of it. Like, I see a lot of mental health issues here with, you know, the proposed crematorium. People are so upset and have anxiety, and people have depression over it, and it's just having a huge impact on this neighborhood. And we, for the life of us, can't figure out why the mayor and a couple of council members are so adamant that that has to go in this location. There's so many other pieces of land in the city on the outskirts or or right outside the city where it could go. So why press so hard to put it right in the middle of somebody's neighborhood? Do we know any more about the timing of being told you have to take down your signs? Because it went from a, a local concern. Well, all politics is local. It went from that to you had signs of protests on your front lawns and all of a sudden you were told with threats of fines and maybe other punishments for keeping the signs up. Where does that stand? So um, we had a deadline with the first letter and that passed and nothing happened. And then we had a deadline with the second letter and that passed and nothing happened. So where we are right now is those of us who want to keep our signs up, we're keeping them up. And some people were intimidated and scared by the city. So they, they didn't want any trouble and they took their signs down and Surprisingly, some signs have been stolen, so there are still signs up and some signs are down. That's where we are now, but the the city lawyer basically said in her legal opinion that the stand the the city took would never stand up in court, so we really have nothing to fear from from what the city is saying about fines and jail time. We, We are perfectly within our charter rights to have signs up and to to freedom of expression and freedom of political opinion. Just because our opinion is different from the mayor's doesn't mean we can't say it on the sign. Yeah, and there's nothing that would promote any violence or crimes or hate. I mean, it all sounds fairly innocuous to me to say that you're opposed to a development or 
one, or in this case, the crematorium. Uh, anything else you'd like to add this morning, Kathy, while we have you? No, that's about it. I just, um, I wanted to say that we, like, we're looking for a lawyer, and we had one from the political, uh, the Public Legal Information Association of Newfoundland that didn't work out, and um, after a few days, he said he didn't want to cover this issue. And um, it's just surprising that, you know, we're, we're a neighborhood of, of very concerned citizens, and we're trying to fight the city. And, I mean, it's definitely grassroots against big city. And we're having so much difficulty getting a lawyer to represent us. And I, I actually thought people in Newfoundland were a bit more compassionate than that. And we do have some money, but we don't have, like, the amount of dollars that we'd need to, you know, to hire a lawyer. So we were hoping somebody would do it on contingency or pro bono or for the amount of money that we do have. So, um, yeah, that's where we are right now. We want to go forward. We want to go to court with it and challenge it legally. But our hands are tied at the moment until we, we get some legal representation. I appreciate the time this morning, Kathy. Thank you. Hey, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and try to get back on track here with the breaks. Uh, Lindy's back in the queue, wants to talk about air travel. Marilyn wants to pick up on healthcare. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's try line three again. Lindy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, I'm just wondering, have you heard of uh, anything about WestJet that's going to uh, stop flying east from, from Calgary? Uh, the story last week wasn't that they're stopping, but they're intensifying their focus on Western Canada. There will be some reduction in service in Eastern Canada. What specifically? Not really sure yet. Yeah, I was just wondering if you had heard, heard anything, eh? because I was told by a good source that, uh, that, that that's what they were going to do. But that does that... Does that uh, uh, Include, I wonder, that uh, uh, low low cost cost fly, uh, flight that flies from from uh, Toronto. That would be Swoop. Uh, that's a subsidiary, low cost subsidiary of uh, WestJet. So they're already here. But the story doesn't say that they are going to kill Eastern Canada in full. Don't know. No, because uh, uh, somebody was on there from from uh, WestJet that I or, uh, or I thought it was anyway. And he said they were thinking about making uh, it even longer or larger, the, the, the swoop. Uh, well, that could uh, be. I don't know. Low income one or low whatever. What, eh? So, like I said, I was just wondering, you know. Well, this is from the, uh, the head man at WestJet. It simply says that they are pulling back on some of the airline's regional routes in eastern Canada. Doesn't say that they are killing WestJet service in eastern Canada. I'm flying WestJet at the end of the month, actually. So I read the story last week, and it, it certainly did say they were going to increase their focus on Western Canada. Of course, bigger population base, more routes, more tickets, more sales, you know the deal. So, yeah, that's basically what we know. Yeah, I wonder, is it because of the price because of, the price of jet fuel, I wonder? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I suppose if they're able to sell the tickets and fill the airplanes, they'll cover those costs. They're not, they're not doing it for free. WestJet will also increase nonstop flights from west to east using 737s. Is another part coming out of this story as I'm giving it a quick, quick look, uh, while we speak. Da, 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 da. Yeah, so it's basically what I already said. They are not pulling it in full, but they are certainly focusing more and more on Western Canada. Uh-huh. 
Okay, sir. That's what I want to know. No problem. Thank you. All the best. Bye, Lindy. All right. All right, let's keep going. Line number two, Marilyn, you're on the air. Hi. Yes, this is the first time for me calling. But uh, i got a story to share with people, uh, what happened over the last month, actually. Uh, my partner and I were uh, down in Bonavista Bay uh, on the 24th of May weekend when he suffered a heart attack. He was taken to the hospital in Clarenville. From there, he went to Carbonier, uh, where he waited 18 days to go in St. John's to have a dye test done. They did the dye test, and uh, they found two blockages, which they fixed told him that he was a brand-new man sent home uh, a week ago, two weeks ago. Last Friday, he came home. Monday, he went for a walk on Saturday. Everything was fine. Monday, we left to go for a little walk not far from our house, and he suffered another heart attack. Um, anyway, took him back to the hospital again. Hello? She's still there. Just don't know why we can't hear. Well, let's let's try and get her back on. So I don't know. I didn't touch anything that time. So I'm not taking the. I'm not falling on my sword for that one. Uh, one more before we go to the news. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad, you. I'm not bad at all, sir. Patty, I just wanted to uh, briefly, uh, I guess, raise the issue. I guess of. Uh, you know, these uh, what I'll call buzzwords that you hear in government all the time, uh, openness and transparency. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to say that while I, I think if you look at all governments over the years, you can there's lots of examples of where that didn't necessarily happen. But, um, you know, I, I, I have to say that I am particularly concerned uh, with this particular administration as it relates to openness and transparency. And there are numerous examples which I could uh, talk about. Certainly, we, I heard my colleague Dave Brazel uh, last week talk about all the orders uh, in council that uh, were not publicly released that uh, normally would have been released, arguably. Uh, we've seen the example with the Rothschild report, and while I appreciate there are parts of the report that uh, would have to be kept confidential for obvious reasons, um, I don't think it's appropriate to hide the entire report. Um, I look at the concerns that have been raised by the privacy commissioner about the uh, uh, you know, potential abuse of the client solicitor privilege um, portion of the uh, ATIPA Act and how that's being used. We look at the handling of the whistleblower report. I can look to, um, uh, I can look to Nalcor and Oil Co., which are still under a veil of secrecy as it relates to the Energy Corporation Act. And while that act may have been put in place by a previous administration. The reality of it is that um, there's been lots of ample opportunity for that act to be changed. And I know when uh, the bill came into the House Assembly, for example, to create oil co, one of the issues I raised in debate at the time was now that we're going to be creating oil co, I would hope that we would be removing uh, that oil co would not fall under the Energy Corporation Act and that it would be up to the privacy of the commissioner to decide what information gets released and what information doesn't. And, of course, the government uh, chose not to act in that regard. So everything is a secret over there. And, uh, you know, again, at Nelcor or Hydro, I can remember at the time with the embedded contractors. And Dwight Ball, who was premier at the time, was going to get us the information on the embedded contractors. He went to Mr. Marshall, and lo and behold, nope, nothing released. And they had an opportunity, as did uh, this administration, to 
changed yet, so we could find out what's going on at Nelcor or, or I guess now NL Hydro, and they continue to choose to keep that hidden. So it's not a good look for the government, for sure, and it's definitely not good for democracy. And uh, if anything, uh, when it comes to access to information, I think things have gotten a lot worse, in my opinion, in my 11 years. Well, there's a couple of strange things have happened. So when it came to the elections and our report, there was simply no need for that to be handled the way it was. That's a self-inflicted wound. And now we have what seems to be a bit of a standoff between the government and the privacy commissioner, Michael Harvey, which is not good for any of us. The, some yeah. of these orders in council... I don't even know how they evaluate why some things would be held back. And the, the one issue, and I wish there had to be some discussion with uh, Jennifer Williams last week when she got the Muskrat update. So we know the 2041 panel that's been established. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good idea because there's a lot of misnomers out to what 2041 actually means. So I think that's a healthy yeah. idea. But at the exact same time, apparently there's something called, I think it's called the Churchill River Energy Analysis Group or yep. something. And so, and the person chairing that, is Brendan Paddock. Mr. Paddock might be the a perfect person for the job, but how and why do we know about the 2041 panel, but not this compliment? And the Premier or others will tell you that, you know, Mr. Paddock and his role with the rate mitigation uh, negotiations, he should belong in this. But how does this just happen without anybody even knowing anything about it? Oh, no, it's unbelievable. And if you listen to the Premier's response to it, um, which I thought was, it was, it was uh, well, uh, depends on how you look at it. I thought it was kind of disturbing. The Premier responded to that, and he said, the fact that Dave Brazel knows about this uh, tells you that we are being open and transparent, when the reality of it is the only reason we knew about it is because there was access to information uh, requests that were put in that forced it to be released, and it came out, of course, in that uh, that report by that group. I forget the name of them now. Other than that, we would know nothing about it. So uh, it's it, it, it's beyond me how, uh, how they're operating, uh, you know, in in total secrecy in many in many regards and like i say patty it's uh, certainly not good for democracy at all people have the right to know about uh, you know and, and we know there have to be some restrictions but i mean the reality of it is every time we talk about anything whether it be government now or whatever the case might be all those expenditures are my money and yours like we own all of this it's all of our money and we have a right to know what's going on with the money that's being spent on our behalf, and it's just not happening. Um, and uh, so it's time for, uh, I think it's time for government to take a, a little look inward in what's happening. It's, it's, and, and certainly even on the political front, it's not doing them any favors. Uh, I, I, would, I would say that the downfall of the uh, previous PC administration, no doubt in my mind, was, uh, was Bill 29. And it, it certainly began with Bill 29. Down. No Absolutely, doubt. and this and this is uh, they're heading down the exact same path as far as I'm concerned uh, as of late, and uh, if they don't uh, change their ways, they're going to be in for a big shock come next time around. I think. Well, you know, if it's a if it's a leak or an access to information submission, all right. But you know, something that I think is worthwhile for the government and all politicians and political parties to understand. It's like, even with the elections and L report, the speaker was all dismayed with how people knew anything about it. Look, I know. you can't get three people to keep a secret, right? So if there was nope. 21 people as part of that investigation, of course somebody told someone. Or, I mean, of course they did. Same thing yep. with all of these moves. Someone at Nalcor will catch a whiff, someone will mention it to someone, someone will mention it to someone else, like the Pantene commercial. They'll tell one person who tells another person. Next thing you know, it becomes pretty well understood in the general public. And 
the political parties sometimes think, well, we've got this under wraps. No, you don't. People talk. So it's better for us to hear from you versus hear from someone else, and then you have to field the question. There's zero political upside there. So I'm not sure how they evaluate why do it the way they do it sometimes on some of these reports and or investigations or whatever else. No, I don't understand it either, Patty. I think that you get in your own little bubble there and uh, and and you get and paranoia sets in and it's kind of an Austin against them mentality and uh, that's I, I think that's what happens uh, in a lot of cases and uh, but in the end, you're only doing harm to yourself and that's exactly what uh, with all these things that are coming out and the more things that come out, they're only doing more damage politically to themselves and uh, and more importantly, um, you know, in, in terms of democracy and the people's right to know, that's not happening and that's not good for any of us. So anyway, that's basically all I wanted to say today. Uh, the only thing I, only other thing I want to add, Patty, is that uh, I will throw this out there is that um, it's been now over six years um, since I first uh, received a commitment from then Auditor General Terry Patton to uh, do an audit of Nalcor. We've gone through three and a half uh, Auditor General since. The, the the new Auditor General came into office in April of last year. She was in office, I think. I gave her a week, I think it was, maybe less. <laughs> and I contacted her and said, look, where are we to on this? This is ridiculous. Uh, she committed to me at that time it would be made a priority. It's That was last April, so now we're into June. So now we're a year and two months later with the new Auditor General going on seven years, and we still have not received that audit from Nelfor. Beyond me, why not? But uh, it begs the question for sure. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Patty. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Yeah, it's... Uh, like, for starters, Michael Harvey plays a critically important role. So even if it's just the one subject area of a client solicitor privilege, as opposed to being told that's the case... Why don't we just let Mr. Harvey figure it out? You know, he should not be involved, like he said, with the elections and L standoff, is that he's not there to do government's business or to play an active role in those types of affairs, and he should be consulted. But the political determination here is just confusing to me. When we find out things after the fact, people take offense to that. Now, there's going to be some people, regardless of if it's the Tories or the Liberals that are in power, some people are going to hate every single thing they do, every single thing they say, that's that. But there's a big swath of society. I'm not so sure they are too caught up in that part. They just want things to be done efficiently and honestly and transparent and the accountability. They want to have a job. They want to get access to a doctor. Those are the types of things. I think when we stand back, some of the real crazy hyperpartisans are never going to satisfy them. But most of us just want good government, right? And I would suggest there's a good percentage of those people not really that invested in who, what political stripe is sitting in the government seat because... In this province, there's not a huge ideological difference between them all. So, yeah, I don't get it. Let's take a break. Marilyn, you're back in the queue and you're up after this. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's rejoin Marilyn on three. Marilyn, you're back on the air. Yes. Welcome back. I don't know how we got cut off, but you are indeed back. Okay, thank you. Yes, I was uh, saying that my uh, partner, he had a heart attack. 
he was brought to Clarenville Hospital, and then he was sent to Carabmere, where he waited for 18 days to have a dye test done. He went into the science. He had uh, two stints put in. He got out on a Friday. Uh, Monday, we went for a little walk, and he had another heart attack. Brought him back over to the hospital, and he went in again last Thursday. They had missed three blockages. And two of those were blocked more than the two that they put the stents in. Now, I mean, you know, I can't wrap my head around how a doctor, doctors, can miss three blockages in a person and cause them to have another heart attack. It seems pretty strange because the dye test is all revealing. That's right. But no, he, they said, they, I mean, the doctor admitted they, they, they missed three blockages which meant, I mean, we, we were walking. I mean, he had to stop. I had to come home and get the car and pick him up and bring him back to the hospital. And when we got over there, he was after having another heart attack. And so how is he now? Well, he, well he's fine now. He got five stints instead of two. So I guess he's also, he's fine, but he's also lucky. Oh, he, he is very, very lucky. I mean, you know, uh, how, how anybody could miss three st- three blockages is beyond me. And, I mean... Like, you know, I know our health system has gone down, you know, I, I got no trust in it anymore. I, I never had much before this, but I have less now. You know, I mean, he, he could have easily died. He could have died on the road right here. So, obviously, you've had this conversation with a doctor or doctors or the regional health authority. What is, what's anybody saying? Well, all they're saying is that, oh, you know, well, we missed it. <clears throat> you know, there's no explanation as to why they missed it. We just missed it. We didn't see it. Like I said, well, you know, how can you not see it? You know, I mean, when you when you do a dye test, that dye goes right everywhere in your heart. And, I mean, uh, you know, I have a pacemaker myself, you know, and I know a little bit about the heart. But, I mean, you know, they should have picked up on it, especially the one, 80% one was blocked. They never even fixed that one. They didn't even see that one. Like, I, you know, and I mean, everybody that I've spoken to, I mean, they, like, they can't wrap their head around our hospital, our doctor, cardiologist, can miss that many blockages, you know, and cause a man almost to die. Well, I I guess we'll just consider uh, you and your partner and your family uh, lucky, but we shouldn't be relying on luck when we're talking about getting an appropriate and timely diagnosis. That's exactly right, because when he left the hospital, uh, like I said, he was home exactly three days. Three days when he had the, the second heart attack. And, I mean, like, he took the pain in the chest down there and that. And you know, we, we just figured maybe it was uh, where they were after putting so many needles in him because they were giving him blood thinners. And not only that, when I did take him over to the hospital, I got over there around that past one uh, on a Monday, 10 o'clock that night, we were still there. The doctor finally came in and asked, he said, have they been in to give you any blood thinners or Plavix or anything since you've been here? No. Nobody even bothered to come in. They even given a blood thinner knowing that he was just after getting out of hospital after having two stints put in. They didn't, and even the doctor himself said, he said, you know, he said, this is a mistake made here tonight. He said, that should have never happened. You know? So, I mean, like, who are you supposed to trust anymore when it comes to the health system? 
You know, I, I mean, even with now five stints, I'm, I'm still concerned that they're after missing something else. You know, it makes you kind of uneasy. Now, I know there will be instances when we're talking about humans, there will be human error, but the question has to be begged, how frequently do these uh, types of things happen? Not only in, you know, the doctor's office, but in other clinicians' offices and everybody throughout healthcare because we can't afford to get it wrong. And I know full well they're not trying to get it wrong. They're not being willfully negligent. They just, I guess, make some mistakes, but that's of cold comfort for you and your and your partner. Yes, it is. I got to, I got to, especially, I mean, you know, when you're fooling around with heart, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what's keeping you alive. And for something like that to happen, it kind of really puts you on the hedge and really, t- you know, makes you think, what else is on the go, like that they're missing, you know, that people are dying because of the stuff that they're missing, you know. Let's hope that's not the case, but unfortunately it may be in certain circumstances. Marilyn, I'm glad everything's okay, and I appreciate your time this morning. Okay, thank you so much for listening to my story. My pleasure. Take good care. Okay, Okay. you have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number one. Suzanne, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Well, not good. This is a I'm calling from Hampton, and uh, I'm living in a in a rental, and uh, now I got my phone cut and me uh, and me uh, internet, and they're gonna sell the house, and they're cutting the cutting the, like taking meter out of me house. Well, like are you? I, I, I owe too much. Uh, oh, much uh, electricity. And I can't find no place nowhere. And I got when the electricity cold. See, I got the, I got insulin. I got to keep my fridge. So, so if I heard you correctly, you're behind on your rent, and that's why you're being evicted. No, 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 no. It's just he's selling his house. Simple as that. Yeah. See, he lives down the states, and. Uh, he, he had two strokes. He can't remember nothing. And his wife got, uh, uh, she uh, broke her rib, right? And she sound, sound all of her dwellings there. She got one soul. She sound that one too now. But my uh, electricity, see, I was getting social assistance, but uh, I don't get social assistance anymore. I suppose we're getting this uh, survival benefit okay and uh, the only way deal like you've got the the pay up like I'm, I send like say if I get some benefit I'll send on it on the bill but he's found it saying he's I'm not giving enough and there's and they're going to cut the, 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 the power and then I want to have no fridge no no running water, no you know, no no washer, no no electricity. And you've got no return. No, but no return. No. Do you have uh, any family close by? Uh, my sister, but she uh, she's not taking anybody, and she's going away. That's all I got. Uh, my sons is in in Alberta, so. So what are you going to do? I don't know, my love. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to do. I've been trying Labrador Ocean. He said, takes a year. 
I've been looking at the new dancing Deer Lake. Kevin, looking for rentals in Deer Lake in Cornerbrook. Where's Yukon? St. St. John's? I'm in St. John's, yes, ma'am. I tell you what, I'm going to put you on hold. I just uh, whispered something in the producer's ear, the gentleman you spoke with earlier. He'll give you a contact number, and you try them. They might be able to point you in the right direction on the West Coast where you can get some support. How's that? Uh, yeah. Okay? Yeah. Okay, so I'll just put you on hold, Suzanne. You'll speak with Fonz. Well, I talked, I've been talking to a lot of people, like from Steve Bell and, um, and a woman from Steve Bell that got to do it. Some kind of, not Western out, but out care. Western out went out me. Social services, they're finished with me now where I'm going to get that money, right? So. Okay, Suzanne, I'm going to put you on hold. Speak with Fox, she'll give you a number, and this organization might be able to put you, point you in the right direction where you can get some support, okay? Okay, thank you, uh, Patty. Have a good day. You too. You're on hold here now, Suzanne. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Reg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? I'm all right, I guess. Listen, Patty, last Wednesday, somewhere between, say, one fifteen in the night till in the morning, somebody coming my, out of my driveway and stole my airport motor. Uh-oh. You're... Off, off yeah. the back of my boat. I've been there. My 9.9 Evan Road is still missing in action. What kind of uh, upward you lose? A brand new, buddy, a brand new Suzuki, a six horsepower. And but they're not cheap anymore either. I'm telling you, uh, uh, I say he's over two thousand dollars now. Unbelievable! But there's some brazen steal it right off your boat. I suppose if you don't lock everything down, someone's bound to try to steal it. You know something? I, when I put that on there, I said I'll put a couple of bolts through that now to make sure they can't get it off. I put the bolts through. I let them go out a little bit, and then I hid the uh, I pound the end of them so that I hit them so they wouldn't get the knots off. You know, something they got them off. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's an outboard uh, lock you can buy, too. Now, it's no help to you now that the, it's gone, because when you when you screw the mine, you just line them up and you slide this thing across, put a padlock on it, and you can't, you can't undo the, the outboard from the half to the boat. But that's too bad. So what do you want us to do here? Just give us the, the location uh, one more time and when it happened. Uh, I, I'm, at, uh, I'm at Mount Pleasant Avenue. Okay. Now, I got a fair idea where the motor is at. Because up there on Cashin Avenue, there's an apartment building. A couple of years ago, uh, not last winter, winter before, I think, they stole my snowblower. And where they stole the snowblower from was about two feet away from where they stole the outboard motor from. Oh. <laughs> In the driveway. Yeah. I'm telling you, they got some nerves. Oh, do they ever? Uh, brazen is the word I keep coming back to. So that's uh, too bad. He, and uh, my father used to always say to me, "It's one thing you can't do." I said, "What's that?" He said, "Lock from a thief." He said, "Locks will never stop a thief." 
and petty dirt bad thieves up there. Sounds like it. Now, yeah, I got a queer feeling where the outboard motor's at. Now, you can't go and do stuff on your own anymore because if some of them comes out and you do something with one of them, then you get in trouble. You call the cops. I called the cops last Wednesday morning. They never showed up yet. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the cops is afraid of them. You well, know? I don't know why that would be. <laughs> no, I don't either, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, and I got a queer feeling that's where the outboard motor is at up there because they steal the eyes out of your head and come back for the holes. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking, boy. It's ridiculous. That it is. Uh, yeah. I, I appreciate this. So do you want to give out a number if someone wants to give you a call, if they know who has the motor? What do you want to do? Well, whoever got the motor and whoever desold the motor, whoever desold it to, won't be able to use the motor because I know the motor. And the motor is well marked. And whoever buys the motor from them and goes to use it, He's going to get into bigger trouble than the ones who stole the motor. Yeah, hopefully there's a world of hurt to go around for the nuisance or nuisances that are responsible for stealing your motor. I appreciate the time, Reg. Fingers crossed that someone knows who has it and gives you a shout or calls the RNC, whatever it takes. Yeah, okay. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know my story. Let's go to line number one. Diane, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Petty. I have something that I would like to see if you can check into for me, please. Okay. In March, our Honourable Prime Minister Trudeau announced that there was going to be a $400 uh, lump sum to come into the seniors' accounts, a one-time thing. Now, that was in March, and this is June. There's no sign of any money. Did he mean that this would be in 2022 or 2029? Uh, like, you know, everybody is wondering where that money is to. He announced in March that the money would be sent out to the seniors. It's a one-time thing, non-taxable non for the seniors. And as of today, we still haven't received it. So there's a couple of different pots of money. There's so many of these niche pots that it's hard to keep track of every single one of them i know so sir, i know was this a property tax rebate or no 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 there was a thing that prime minister trudeau had told yeah, that all minister. canadians would receive four hundred dollars in april and it was non-refund non you know like you didn't have to report it for taxes it's a one-time thing and it started going around that he was going to start sending out the 18th of april well, this is the 20th of June, and nobody seems to know where it's gone or if it's available or what. Is there any way you can check into it for us? Sure, I can. Um, okay. But I don't know it to be uh, all Canadians. So are we talking about low-income seniors, persons with no, disabilities? No, he, he didn't. Because not everybody's getting anything. No, he didn't specify any age. He said seniors. And as you know, we got multiple seniors. We got once you're over 50, you're a senior. Once you're over 65, you're a senior senior. And once you're over 80, you're a senior, senior, senior. <laughs> okay. So I'll have to check on this $400. I know the associated one-time uh, check for folks 75 and older, old age security, that's out. People have that. So this one-time only 
Four hundred dollars. Okay, there's a couple of He announced it in March. All right, I, I got gotcha. you. Uh, yeah. There's also references to uh, a, a, a Canadian home affordability one-time check that was five hundred dollars. That is not out yet, but okay. this, this specific four hundred dollars, I will just have to look to make sure okay. I'm on the right track. How's that? Sounds good. Sounds good, Patty. You have a great day. You too, Diane. Thank okay, you. Okay, hon. Thanks. Take, take bye care. Bye bye. Uh, we now get that. that, that. Yeah, Raphael says, I mentioned my stolen Emerald. Haven't mentioned that in, I don't know, maybe a decade. Yeah, and that stuff happens, boy, oh boy. You know, there was one of my buddies uh, bought a new bicycle for his teenager. I think the young fellow's probably 15, 16. Day one, bike in the backyard, his new lock on it, but just in between the spokes and the frame of the bike, gone. So someone picked it up and walked away with it. So willing to walk right into your backyard. You know, you often wonder... And some people talk big game, you know, if I catch them in my backyard or in my shed or in my home, they'll be held to pay. And for some people, they mean it and they'll dole it out. But it can be a little bit of a frightening encounter, too, with someone who's brutal enough and a big enough of a nuisance or brazen enough to do that. Who knows what else they might do. But anyway, how are we doing on the phone there, Fonz? Let's take a break for the newscast. We're going to the news right on time. What do you know? Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Uh, Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good day, Mr. Daly. Good day to you. I just want to get an update on... uh... Someone uh, someone went into my bank account. I uh, just came from the bank, and I filled out a three-page questionnaire and gone to a fraud department. Okay. And uh, like I say, it, uh, like first thing of all, I want to let you know that it was done online, and I have no access to online, so, and and that. And I noticed it there, sadly, when I got a bank book updated, uh, someone went into my account, but the bank is telling me the PIN number on my card was not uh, compromised. So which means that someone out there has my card there, but it was done online. The bank told me and said, well, the purchase was done at Skip the Dishes uh, online purchase. Oh. How but, does that happen? Uh, my, my PIN number wasn't compromised. So I got it all, got it all. The bank is going to check it out for me now, like I say. Uh, like I say, was well, someone out there, well, my, well, I put a stop on my card there sadly when I found out. So it's gone through now to fraud department. Like I say, uh, well, for, like I say, I told my, I got no access to online, but the purchase was made online. So be aware. I, can I mention the bank or? Well, I'm not so sure it matters because, you know, no. someone defrauded you and them by the sounds of it. Well, not only me. Oh, is that right? And, and no, no, I said not, not probably someone else that done it too, right? But like, but like I say, the transaction was done Monday, the thir- the fourth, uh, the thirteenth of uh, June. And like I said, and and, and, like, and, and like I say, well, it's gone. Like I say, be aware. But that's the first time it ever happened to me, something like that. But uh, like I say, and it was done, and it was done online. Well, it's always uh, a worthwhile exercise to keep an eye on what's happening inside your bank account because these stories are pretty common. There, a lot of this goes on out there. And 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 like I say, the only the only, the only way to, to get access to my account is uh, 
he had to print a card with my because my card, like I told him, my card don't leave my wallet. But uh, he could have purchased this online, but the requirements online, the bank said you don't need a PIN number. Your personal PIN number. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know how they make that transaction without access to your account or any of the information required to place an order. Because if I go ahead and order something on Skip the Dishes, it needs a fairly specific payment as opposed to, well, I just pluck your name out of the phone book and I get you to pay for it. So, uh, like you say, that's the first time I ever heard it. So you know from top, but skip the dishes, do you? Well, I mean, people use the apps that are, you know, yeah. as opposed to trying to f defraud you at the bank itself, which is a little bit more difficult, obviously, then things like that happen on different applications, you know, like, and, and it's not just any of these uh, food delivery applications. There's all kinds that can be co-opted by someone out there who's willing to, to bilk you out of your hard-earned cash. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully the fraud department gets to the bottom of it and gets whoever did it and gets your money back in your account. Are we talking about a sizable sum? Uh, big enough. No, uh, well, big enough. When he got into like $560 or 5000 Oh, my. I appreciate the call. Anything else you want to tell us this morning? No, I just want to let people, just let people check, your, check your balance in your accounts and your statements because I certainly did. And I certainly noticed that sadly when I went and when I, when I got my bank, when I went and got my statement from my, from my bank, I certainly noticed that right away. Well, because if you never. I called, and yeah. I called the bank and he put a stop on my card. Like you would. You did the right thing. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the time. Hopefully someone gets to the bottom of it. Yeah, well, I hope you do. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just one particular application which puts people in jeopardy, but anyway. Let's keep going. Line number two, say good morning to Kristen Murray with the NL Federation of Cooperatives. Good morning, Kristen. You're on the air. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Um, so I'm calling in to tell people about some events that I'm hosting with the NLSC. Um, so I'm a grad student working at the Federation of Co-ops, and I'm doing a project where I'm evaluating um, having a co-op incubator program to develop new co-ops in the province. Um, so I'm hosting some community events where people can come out and, well, first learn a bit more about co-ops um, and then kind of hear about my idea for that incubator program that we could be offering uh, which would likely contribute to economic growth and social growth and some good stuff based on new co-ops. So, yeah. So t talk, us up, talk us through the incubator program that you envision. Yeah, so it would be the type of program where um, folks could come to us with new co-op ideas or just an idea for, you know, a new um, social-type business and, we can give them resources and support and information about the cooperative model because it's like a very distinct business model, right? Where, um, you know, it's very democratic and um, everyone has, you know, every member has one vote and it's a shared leadership type structure. So it definitely suits a lot of social, you know, business ideas nowadays, you know, and you're looking to develop a new, um, I don't know, for example, like housing model or, you know, an, a farmer's market, right? So there's lots of applications to it. Yeah, there's a housing cooperative coming to Portugal Gulf, if I remember correctly, and it's applied in yeah. different industries. There's, you know, whether it be the credit union themselves and yeah. or the Labrador Shrimp Company or the Fogo Island co-op inside their fishery. So 
are there things yeah. where it might not work for? Like, give us an example. You've thought this through probably uh, far <laughs> more than I have. You know, is it applicable to all? Yeah, I would I would say so because it really comes down to um, people wanting to work together in a more um, innovative and, and democratic way, like I said. So I truly think that it can work in all different kinds of industries and sectors because it's really about the model, the core, and, you know, the, the mission and the business itself is really um, another layer to it, but it really comes down to how people want to work together, right, in an organization. And so co-op models work for, for all types. Yeah. It certainly works in some of the arenas that I mentioned because they're having yes. great successes with it. So uh, talk us through the events. What do people need to know if they want to get more info? Yes. Um, so I'm hosting free events, um, and the I guess the title of the series is called a cooperative incubator in NL. It's kind of a presentation and a workshop. I'm going to do some presentations and do a little exercise and having Q&A with people. Um, and I'm doing both online and in-person events for residents in three regions right now. So St. John's Metro Region, the first one's happening tomorrow night at the St. John's Farmer's Market from 7 to 8. And the online for the St. John's Metro Region is July 5th from 7 to 8. And then I'm also doing events in Gander, Newest Valley region, and then Clarenville and Bonavista region as well. So those are later in June and July as well. So if, uh, And for the in-person events, I'm having some free food and refreshments as well. So if people want to come, I mean, just come <laughs> if you can in person and then on Zoom, but really you should RSVP. Um, so there's many ways you could do that. You could go at the MLSD's Facebook page because we have all the events in there. Uh, or Eventbrite if you're fancy and you know where to work that. Um, but if not and you you know know that's working for you, you can always email me, which is uh, Kristen at nlfc.coop. So that's K-R-I-S-T-E-N at nlfc.coop. So what does the acronym stand for, Newfoundland Federation of? Yeah. Co-op. Okay, so what was the acronym one more time if people are trying to find it on their Facebook? Yes, it's NLFC. The Simple as that. Newfoundland okay. Labrador Federation of Cooperatives. Got it now. Okay, so <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Is this driven because of your the coursework in your grad studies, or is this a personal interest of yours? How did this come to be? It's a bit of both. Um, so I'm an MBA SE student at Memorial University, and uh, so I'm studying social enterprise, and cooperatives are definitely a form of social enterprise. So I've just become very particularly interested in co-op. I'm also on the board of the Social Justice Co-op. So, um, you know, it's just very interesting to me. So this kind of comes from a personal interest, but I think it also serves the NLFC and really more, you know, uh, it's more robust program for their co-op development uh, here. So it's it's very exciting and a um, lot to look forward to in the future. i am always been a little bit surprised why different regions don't adopt the co-op model and the collaborative nature of uh, yeah. it because there's a yeah. bunch of upsides to it, you know, so we can point to successes held by whether it be Labrador or Fogo Island, yep. but it doesn't seem like it's catching on the way you imagine it would. Maybe it's, a, yeah. you know, looking out for number one and everyone left to their own devices, but sometimes yeah. cooperation is a pretty effective <laughs> way to get business done and to, you know, for everyone yeah. to be uh, successful and profitable versus, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, to the winner go the spoils as opposed to all hands together. So it's interesting. Kristen, exactly. uh, good luck with it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, that sounds interesting. Let's take a break. When we come back, Travis in the queue to talk about the PUB. Don't go away.
Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Travis, you're on the air. Uh, hello, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, the PUB, I have a few questions that I think you can answer about this entity, whatever it is. Uh, number one, what is it? Uh, why do we need it? It sounds to me like they have no control whatsoever over the price of anything. Uh, to me, it sounds like a, a unnecessary government bureaucratic thing where we got to pay a bunch of money for people, and all they do is announce the prices of fuel every week. Which, why do we need it? What is it? And uh, should it be something that the government consider just getting rid of? And also, one more question about it. Do other provinces have these things? And uh, anyway, what's your comments? Yeah, many people, many provinces have these types of regulators. Uh, certainly in the province of Nova Scotia, where we talk about things like power rights, they have what they call the USARB, which is their regulator. And I think we do need it. Whether or not we need it for the regulation regarding the price of fuels, I think is a fair debate. But it does other things, right? Public hearings for rate applications coming from Newfoundland Labrador Hydro or Newfoundland Power. They held hearings when there was a big racket about uh, insurance premiums. There was the conversation surrounding compensation for soft tissue in- injuries. Uh, regarding your auto insurance and the legal community and what have you. So, yeah, the PUB does some important work. There's no doubt about it. I think we've got a keen focus on the role they play with the petroleum pricing panel at this moment because we all see what's happening at the pumps and for filling up our fuel tanks. But they do perform other uh, exercises and roles that I do think are important. Well, I, I didn't know a lot of that, Patty, so thanks for answering those questions You know, because uh, – all I hear about the PUB is that they come out every week and they announce prices for fuels, and uh, they, they don't seem to have any power in that regard. Um, and as far as rates for Newfoundland, Labrador, uh, Hydro, uh, again, what do they do? How, how can they affect that? What's the, part, the point about Newfoundland, Labrador, Hydro again, sorry? Yeah, how, how, how can they have any effect on the rates? I mean, at the end of the day, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, they set their rates. No, the, pub, the PUB sets the rates. Some of that changes when Muskrat comes on, and that was, you know, the two bills, uh, the notorious bills, one was the wind energy ban that was back in 2007, uh, Bill 60 or 61, I can't remember which was which, but there's another bill that takes the PUB out of the rate setting when Muskrat Falls comes on stream. So at this moment in time, and Newfoundland Power is generally the entity that puts forward the applications for rate hikes, and the PUB determines what the rate hike will be. So, And some of that goes through public hearings and represented by the consumer advocate, which at this point is Dennis Brown. So Hydro d- doesn't pluck a number out of thin air and is allowed to apply it. The PUB approves rates. So, so how is it that it was every Thursday we used to hear these reports from the PUB about uh, the price of fuels, and what is this interruption formula that they have now, which they seem to show up every day and just be able to hike it up by seven or eight cents? So who tells them to do that? They, nobody tells them. They tell themselves, I suppose. The interruption formula has always been something available to the PUB, and it was used remotely and rarely 
in years past. Now the PUB will tell you that they're reacting to the volatility of the market and the ever-changing benchmark prices, in particular for the distillates, right, for the propane and furnace oil, stove oil, gasoline, diesel. So it's always been something they could do. We just got used to it being Wednesday news outlets and the uh, gas stations would get an update from the PUB. It would be applied Thursday morning, whatever the change would be, up or down. These days it seems like it's nothing but up. But, yeah, it's always something they could have done. But I guess there's a lot of different contributing factors as to why it's been so up and down like a dog's stomach. But, you know, even if they're not using the same benchmark numbers as other provinces are using, it's hard to understand the difference in the price of fuel. I know we've got, you know, an isolated province where an island there's going to be increased costs for importation and distribution, but nowhere near the disparity between the price here and the prices in other parts of Atlantic Canada or across the country. We don't have a refinery doing any of this work anymore, so I know that contributes some. Many people think that's the 5 to 10 cents of uh, monies going to these specific companies. But, yeah, there's... I mean, I'm not justifying anything because I'm quite frustrated with all of these out-of-nowhere increases. I mean, Friday night, out-of-nowhere, 10 cents on diesel. What? How'd that happen? So... Yeah, where did that come from, so it's your opinion that the Public Utilities Board is uh, um, a necessary uh, a thing for the province and it does good for the people in the No, I think what I said is that there are, they deal with a variety of different issues, some of which you kind of need a regulator, a mediator, someone to be the arbitrator, because if we didn't have the regulator, it'd be between politicians, Newfoundland Hydro, uh, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, Newfoundland Power to set rates, as opposed to a quasi-independent, quasi-judicial board like the PUB on that front. Same thing with insurance premiums or what have you. If we left it up to simply the industry and politicians, I don't think we'd that be that much further ahead. Plus, who's going to hold the public hearings on some of these things? The PUB and the regulatory issues they deal with are important. Now, to have a debate whether or not the regulation on the price of fuel is required, we certainly can have that. For them to show their work as to why they've made a decision on Friday to increase the price of diesel 10 cents, that's important. But until we have those bits of understanding, we won't know whether it's a thumbs up or thumbs down on fuels. But for insurance and power rates and stuff, if we didn't have the PUB, what would we have? Companies and politicians, I don't think that's in our best interest. Uh, well, you know, fair enough. I didn't understand what it was about, and uh, you helped me understand a little bit here today, Patty, so I appreciate you. I appreciate the call. Thanks a lot. Take care, man. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, certainly not no glowing reviews, but they do some things that we need them to do. Line number one, Teresa, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Morning to you. Uh, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just calling now. You had a gentleman on earlier, like uh, three calls before this one. Uh, about his fraudulent activity on his bank account. Yeah. Okay, so the same thing happened to me on Friday. Uh, I had 16 transactions that was taken out of my account. Oh, my. From the same company, um, still waiting on the bank to verify where it came from. And I still have to wait, obviously, to get my money back. So it totaled $272.53. 16 transactions all in the one day? All in the one day. I went in actually Friday morning because my check went in. So I said, I'll go in now and check, make sure my check went to bank, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, when I did, there were 16 transactions. Yikes. I mean, you got to keep your eyes on your bills and on the till like a hawk. Yeah. 
Yeah, and actually, I had a lady in that day at work, and she told me that she went somewhere, and her bill was 200 and some odd dollars, and she said she had her wallet laid against the, the debit machine, and she said uh, the young fellow passed her back her receipt, and she said, I didn't pay for it yet, and he said, yes, you did. You paid it on your MasterCard. She was paying it on her debit, and her MasterCard scanned in. And she only had her wallet laid by the debit machine. So I suppose the summary uh, of all of these types of calls before we run out of time this morning is do yourself a favor and constantly and consistently have a look at what's happening inside your bank account or with your credit card and everything else that has your personal information and your money attached to it. Yeah, for sure. Sorry it happened to you, Teresa. Hopefully it gets settled and you get the cash back. Hopefully. <laughs> Fingers Thank crossed. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Teresa did indeed have the last word, and we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonce King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.